Thank you, Brother Dalton. Good singing tonight. I want to remind everyone also, let's continue to be in prayer over some things. Uh, We need to pray about our meeting, special meeting that's coming up during the month of June for the weekend of Father's Day. And uh, please be in prayer for that. That's going to be a special weekend for us. And we want to uh, get the word out and have a lot of folks come for that weekend meeting. Uh, Just talking to Annette, and uh, she's going to the doctor tomorrow and may find out some news about her MRI. So we want to continue to remember her. Please, if you would, pray for Annette as you go home tonight and think about her as she goes to the doctor tomorrow. Uh, Also, Masters Men coming up next week and uh, on Friday. And uh, any of you men that weren't able to make it for the meeting, uh, at 7.30 on Friday morning, we're meeting for breakfast at Black Bear before we go. So uh, everyone's welcome and all the men are welcome to come to that. So please remember these things that are taking place and we'll just ask God to really bless our church through all of these things that are happening. I've had just a great opportunity. Uh, I don't know why the Lord has impressed me uh, in just the past few days about some things, but one of them is just gratefulness to the Lord for our church. And uh, I just continually thank the Lord for the people that we have here, for the faithfulness of of folks and just the way they love the Lord. I I can't express uh, how grateful my wife and I are for the goodness that folks have to us. And so I've just had the opportunity to really just thank the Lord for, for our church. And I just keep hearing over and over again from visitors and folks that are just saying, you know, they found our church to be very, very friendly. And we want to put our best foot forward. Sunday is Mother's Day, so we'll have some visitors, we hope, lots of visitors, so we want to be sure we greet everybody, and we're really friendly with everybody on, uh, on Sunday, and I know you will be. All right, let's take our Bibles now, if you would, and we'll open them to Ephesians chapter 2, the second chapter of Ephesians, and for the past couple of weeks, we've been talking about these first three verses in Ephesians chapter 2. And you may remember that in the first message that I preached on these verses, that I said if verses 1 through 3 of Ephesians 2 were all that we had in the Bible, if that's all we had of the Bible, then we would be a very depressed people. We would be in a miserable state if all that we had to read was Ephesians 1 through 3. And what those verses do is paint a very different picture of us than most people have of themselves. If you were to ask most people to, how to, uh, or to evaluate their lives and to think about their personalities and their potential, uh, most of us really think that we're pretty well off. Maybe we could stand a little bit of improvement in some areas, but for the most part, there's really not any of us, we think, that are in need of an extreme makeover. We're just pretty good people. And one of the most serious errors that we make when we evaluate our standing with God is that we fail to recognize the very depths of our depravity. And our condition is actually much much worse than we could ever imagine. And the Bible describes our condition as being dead in trespasses and sin. And that's what that first verse of Ephesians tells us. We are dead in trespasses and sin. But then it goes beyond that because it begins to heap even more condemnation upon us. Uh, and, And it tells us that every faculty and every desire of our heart is against God. And so we are in a very deplorable situation. And we very often underestimate what we are by nature and what we were before Jesus changed us. Now, we underestimate our depravity. We underestimate the human nature. And if we do that, 
then I think that we'd be also very seriously guilty of underestimating the real heights and the greatness of our salvation after Jesus saves us. If you really don't see how far you were in sin, then you really can't understand how far you've been lifted up. And we underestimate the greatness of our salvation. And salvation is not just simple processes. I mean, after God saved this unworthy soul of ours, we should not take it lightly. And we ought not to really uh, talk about it offhandedly as if salvation is just simple, just simple uh, human decision-making. And that's all that ever separates us from life and death. It's much more than that. And all that we have to do to see it is to go back and look at chapter 1 in Ephesians to understand why. Because Paul there speaks about the power in salvation as being the very same power that raised Christ from the dead. That's the kind of power it takes for a person to be saved. And the most awesome displays of God's power are not uh, the works that God did in creation. And it's not the things of the miracles of the Old Testament that we read. The most awesome display of God's power was when he raised Christ from the dead. And every one of us that are saved here tonight, we have also experienced Christ's resurrection. Now tonight I want to speak to you on that subject, our resurrection with Christ. And as we read the scriptures tonight, I want you to take careful note, pay special attention to verse number 4 when we begin to read it. And you'll see the big change that takes place from verses 1 through 3. And verse 4 is quite different from what we read in verses 1 through 3. So let's notice that change. Let's stand for the reading, if you would, please. And we'll look at verse number 4. That's where we'll begin tonight. And notice these first two words. As Paul begins verse 4, he says, But God... He's just finished telling us verses 1 through 3 and how deep in depravity and sins that we are. And he comes to verse 4 and he says, But God, but God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus." that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding richness of his grace and his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these wonderful words of Scripture. We've been brought so low, and yet Paul brings us right back with the words, but God, and we see what you've done for us. Help us to understand as we preach tonight, Lord, to not only see the depths of our depravity, but also the greatness of our salvation that's been provided through the Lord Jesus Christ. Bless in this message tonight, and we give you the praise for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Paul writes in verses 1 through 3 with with just the full intention of of bringing us as low as we can go. And when we're finished with those three verses, we see a mountain of of depression and depravity. And we find ourselves under this massive pile of rubble and, and just the miserable failure of our lives And we see that we have absolutely no possibility of escaping it. And those verses are written to show us that we have no hope. Uh, There is no way that in our natural selves that we could ever reach God. And make no mistake about this, folks. Anybody who can read these first three verses of Ephesians and come away with the idea of I can or I will, they grossly misunderstand what is written here. There is no I can and there is no will, I will, in these statements. 
But we come to verse number four. And I say but because that's the very same word that Paul uses. He says but. And the word but is the thing that changes it all. Now we, we know that but is a very simple conjunction. Only three letters, but it's a very simple conjunction. And it's a tiny word here that connects two very profound thoughts. Because here is a word that in these scriptures on which hinges on one side the thoughts of doom and misery and hopelessness. But on the other side of that conjunction is a thought that's more sublime than even the human mind can imagine. Paul says, but God. And there's the whole difference. On one side of this conjunction, we're, we're sinking lower and lower. We have no hope of recovery on that side. But then on the other side, we're lifted to the highest star in the heavens. As Paul says, but God, it's all because of God. And isn't it amazing that after reading those scriptures, that there are still many people in the religious world that are saying, but man. And there are some preachers today who are telling you, but, but I... And there are others that are telling you, but you. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says, but God. And if we're going to learn anything at all about the the, the grace of God and faith and about salvation, then we have to have the understanding we must look to God. It's but God. So Paul says, but God. And it's God who's brought us from life to death. It's really God who's raised us. And he did that, the word of God says, by the power in which he raised up Christ from the dead. And so verse number 1 says we're dead in trespasses and sin. But verse number 4 says, but God. And now we're resurrected from that dead state. The title of my message tonight is Our Resurrection with Christ. And only through God's power, as he raised up Christ, can we ever come to know the Lord and be brought from death to life. Now I want to give you three main thoughts about this tonight as we think about our resurrection with Christ Three main thoughts. And first of all, I want us to think about this, that we are raised for our freedom. We're raised for our freedom. Now, the picture that the Scriptures give of the natural man is that we come into this life bound and we are shackled by our sins. And as we enter this life at the very moment that we're born, we come into this world crying because all is not right. We come into this world already unhappy with what's taking place. And have you ever thought about that? I mean, from the moment that a baby is delivered, when that baby comes out of his mother's womb, that baby's not at all happy about it. He doesn't like it. He's been forced to leave an environment that he's used to. He's leaving a place of comfort and quiet and safety, and suddenly he's forced into a world with strangers, and there's coldness and things that he hasn't yet experienced. I remember uh, a month ago when... When little Thad was born, Pam and I went over to uh, visit Melissa in the hospital. And we were talking to Melissa, and as we were, there was a nurse that walked in. And she was giving Melissa some tips on how to handle the baby and and how to take care of this baby. Well, Melissa just kind of rolled her eyes like, well, I, I know everything that there is to do. I mean, I handled Tate. He was 27 pounds when he was born, so I can handle, I can handle this little seven-pound seven baby. But I noticed that the nurse said to her, make sure that you keep him wrapped up. Keep the blankets around him. Keep him warm. And you have to do that because this little baby has come from a temperature of almost 99 degrees down to a temperature of 70 degrees, and he doesn't like it. Uh, it's, not, it's not conducive to his well-being, he thinks, to be in such an environment. And so when we come from our mother's womb, we are upset at that very moment. Things are already going badly for us. It looks like it's not going to get better. 
And so what we are are imperfect people coming into an imperfect world. And you know what happens when you put those two things together? Something bad's going to happen. You're in a miserable state. We have imperfect people coming into an imperfect world, and there is no way that we can become perfect. And yet that is exactly what God requires. There is no way that we can ever come into the presence of God unless we have been made perfect. And so here we are. We're bound by human nature. We're bound by our human will. We're bound in our sins. And we can't do anything about it. We actually don't even desire to do anything about it. And you know why? Because that's our nature. We don't know any better. We've never been introduced to anything better. We can't even look for God. We can't desire God because we don't know anything about Him. And that's what the Word of God calls being dead. Being dead in our sins. We can't approach God. Well, the Bible uses different metaphors to explain this condition. And one of them is that we are slaves. We're bound. We're shackled. And so we need to be set free. And so there's a couple of aspects that I want to talk about our freedom tonight, how we've been set free through our resurrection Christ. And the first thing that I would tell you is that through Christ, we have been freed from physical death. We've been set free from physical death. Now, in verse number 5 of our text, Paul says, Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. Now, one of the things that we really need to do is when you read the book of Ephesians, you also ought to read the book of Romans. I mean, here are two books that go hand in hand, and you really can't understand one very well without understanding the other. And in Romans chapter 8... Uh, Paul deals with some of the same things that we talked about in Romans or in Ephesians chapter 1. And here's what Paul wrote in the second verse of Romans 8. He said, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. He mentions the law of sin and death. And what is this law of sin and death? Well, that's the predominating influence on us that continually keep us from doing anything that would be at all spiritually worthy. The law of sin and death is what condemns us. It's the response of justice against works of unrighteousness. That's the law of sin and death. Now, Paul describes it further in Romans 7, and I'd like you to turn there for just a moment, if you would. Uh, Romans chapter 7 in your Bible, because here Paul explains what sin does to us and why we are bound so tightly by it that we can't escape it. There is no possibility. He writes about this in Romans 7. Look at verse number 5, if you would, please. Romans 7, verse 5. He says, For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin which were by the law did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. For without the law, sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. Now, I don't want to take time now to explain all the nuances of this passage, but I just want us to notice what Paul says when he talks about the law working in us to bring forth fruit unto death. 
But then he goes on in verse number 6 and he says, But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit. Now, folks, here is the thing that we really need to understand about our resurrection with Christ. If the Bible says, as it does in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, that we are raised together with Christ, then whatever the benefits of Christ's resurrection were for Christ we also share in those same benefits. If we are raised with him, we have all the benefits that Christ received. And so we look in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and there Paul talks about the resurrection of Christ and how Christ came back from the dead. And he talks about how the grave is swallowed up in victory. And he talks about how that victory is won in Christ. And then he says that God has given us the victory through Christ. The law of sin and death started with Adam, and it was passed on to all men through Adam, through the Adamic nature. Adam died, and every person in the world must die because we have that Adamic nature. We share in what Adam shared in because of his sin, and Adam became the federal head of the human race. And like as Adam was the federal head of the human race, so Christ is the head of all who are saved. And so we experience all things that Christ experienced when we believe in him. But the point I'm trying to make here is about death. All of us are headed for certain physical death. Now we only know of two people in the Bible who actually didn't die. And those were Enoch and Elijah. But there are many people who believe that Enoch and Elijah are the two witnesses that are spoken of in Revelation chapter 11. There will be two people who will be witnesses, and they're going to come to this earth in in, uh, Revelation chapter 11, and they're actually going to be killed. And many people believe that those two witnesses will be Enoch and Elijah because they too will also have to suffer at some time physical death. Now, that might be true. There's no way that we can know that for sure. But the thing that we understand that uh, in all the human race, if, if there were just two people that escaped this life without dying, that's not anything for us to hang our hats on and say, well, I'm going to escape it as well, because you won't. The overwhelming evidence is there is nobody who gets out of this world alive. But this union of Christ and his resurrection that's spoken about here in Ephesians is the thing that will free us from that physical death. We won't stay in the grave. We won't stay dead. We'll close our eyes only and wake up in the presence of God. We're freed from physical death. But I I want you to understand, though, that Paul's not just talking about physical death because there's another aspect of this. We will conquer physical death, that's for sure. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians, if that weren't true, we would be miserable in this life. We would have no hope. There's nothing to look forward to. But we all will, in Jesus, escape physical death. But that's not all that he talks about because there's another aspect of this. We are also free from spiritual death. We're freed from spiritual death. And spiritual death is actually what that passage in Romans 7 was talking about. Spiritual death is what Ephesians chapter 2 is talking about primarily, and we will escape spiritual death. The hymn writer Charles Wesley said it most beautifully, I think, in one of my favorite hymns when he wrote, And Can It Be? And he said, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. And those chains that he was writing about were the shackles of sin. 
And he said, I couldn't break those shackles of sin. I was bound by those. And it was only through the power of the resurrected Christ that I could ever be set free from my sins. And only then, and Charles Wesley understood it very well, only then could he follow Christ. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about in Ephesians. And yet, there are many people who forget but God. They forget what Paul says in verse number 4, but God, and somehow all of a sudden they think that they're the ones who broke their shackles. They're the ones who set themselves free all by themselves. And so they're free because of what they have done. Folks, that is not the message of Ephesians. Christ is not resurrected by human power. It wasn't his humanity that resurrected him. It was the fact that he was God. He was deity. And that's the power that brought Jesus out of that grave. And so human power, what we are in physical death and more importantly in spiritual death, what we are can never free us from the shackles of sin that we're in. And so we must be brought to life. We have to be quickened to life. And that's what the scripture says. And in the end of this fifth verse in Ephesians chapter 2, there's a parenthesis there that says, By grace ye are saved. Now that's not a parenthesis put there because it's unimportant. Or simply because Paul decided that he would tack this on to the end of the verse. Because by grace are ye saved. That is the crux of the matter. That's what it takes. I mean, it's God's grace. And there is not one iota of what man can do that can be involved in this. Next week we're going to come back and we're going to talk about Ephesians 2 verses 8 through 10. And we'll preach about God's grace as we talk about this subject. The Baptist way is the Bible way. And that's what Baptists have been teaching Salvation is by grace, and we're going to look at those verses. But here we see our union with Christ's resurrection. This is the thing that's made us free, and it's made us free from physical death and also spiritual death. Now I want to go on because, secondly, we need to see that we are raised for our fellowship. Now I want you to notice verse number 6 again. It says, And hath raised us up together, and made us sit together. And I love the word together there. Don't you just love that? I mean, twice Paul uses this in the verse. He says, raised together, made to sit together. And the first question that I think of when I, when I read that, that Christ has raised us up together, my first question is why? And why me? And that's a legitimate question. I mean, I have nothing at all to offer God. Why does he want to sit with me? Why does God desire fellowship with me? I don't have anything to bring him. Now, most of you know that when we enter into a relationship with someone, we look for mutual benefits. We enter into a relationship with someone because I can supply something that person needs and he can supply something that I need. And that's the issue of compatibility. When we get married, we look for compatible people. How can we complement one another? How can I be what that person needs and how can that person be what I need? And we understand that very well. And the same thing is true with an employer and an employee. An employer has a product to put out. He needs to get his product to the market. And you're a person who needs a job. You need to feed your family. And so both of you bring something to the table. Both of you have something to offer. But when it comes to salvation, and I think about me and God, I don't have anything to offer. I don't bring anything to the table. There's nothing that's in me. And, and that song, Rock of Ages, said it better than it ever could be said, I think. In my hand, no price I bring. I don't have anything to offer God. And so this is a legitimate question. Why me? And do you know how most people would answer that question? They think that they really do have something to offer God. And so that's why you have people 
who work for God. And I've preached about that a couple of times. People work for God, but the truth of the matter is you can't work for God. God has to work through you. There's nothing that you can offer God. You can't do anything for Him. Now, so many people think that Christianity is what they do. I mean, here's what makes me a Christian. It's my lifestyle. It's the fact that I teach Sunday school. I sing in the choir. I bring my tithes and offerings to church. And it may even be in the clothes I wear. That's what makes me a Christian. And that's why you have people that center all their Christian life around rules and regulations. And people make up the rules. And somebody's always checking you to see if you're keeping those rules. And you know why it is? Because the rules are what make them Christians, they think. That's, their, that, that's what commends them to God. They're working for God. And that's how they define their spirituality. That's what makes them Christians. But if you think like that, if you're a person who thinks like that, then you have completely missed the point of what this is all about. You can't define what you are by what you do for God. It has to be what God does through you. And that's what the emphasis of this first two chapters has been about. It's not what you do. It's what God does for you and what God does through you. Now let's go back to the premise We're raised for fellowship. And folks, this is so remarkable because without anything to offer God at all, God wants fellowship with me. Well, what takes place in this fellowship? I want to mention just a couple of things to you. As we fellowship with God, the first thing we do is we share a new mind. We share a new mind with God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says, We have the mind of Christ. And so when we come together with Christ, we have oneness of mind. We have Christ's mind in us. In Romans chapter 12, Paul talked about it this way, being transformed by the renewing of your mind. And when you are renewed in your mind, when you're uh, transformed in your mind, when you share a new mind, then that means you have a different outlook. You look at the world differently. You look at yourself differently. You look at all things differently when you have the mind of Christ. Now, do you know that most people... I mean, every person really who doesn't know Christ, they're bound by thoughts of time. Time is what binds them. And you ever thought about that? Why do we think so much about time? It's because there are things that we have to get done in time. And we, we've just got to do those things. We have to have enough time to do all of those things. We accomplish things in time. And so you think about it. Here's how we gauge ourselves. Are we successful? Are we where we want to be? It's all gauged by time. And so we look at our lives and we must reach a certain level in our lives. And by the time that we reach one benchmark, then something should have been accomplished by that time. When you're 18 years old, you should have graduated from high school. When you're 22 or 23 years old, you should have graduated from college. By the time that you're 35, you should be established in a career. By the time that you're 65, you should be ready to retire. And so we gauge all of this by time, and we establish what we are by time. And so everything we think about is consumed with those benchmarks of time. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. Uh, We need those things. But you see, for a lost person, that is all there is. That's all there is. I mean, it's just hitting the markers, hitting the benchmarks as they go through life. And that's the carnal, fleshly mind. That's all that they think about. And so how is it that other people judge us? They judge us by the house that we live in, how successful by our house, by the neighborhood that we're in, by the car that we drive. And so consequently, our minds, or the minds of the lost person at least, are consumed with those things only. That's all that they ever think about. But what happens when you share in the mind of Christ? 
Well, there's a difference because now you begin to think in terms of eternity. You're not thinking about what you accomplish here. I mean, it's what's lasting. It's what goes on through eternity. And so now we begin to realize it's not about rational thoughts. It's not about reasoning. And now we begin to understand there's a spirit in man. There's a spirit in man who lives eternally. And so now we begin to concentrate on those things that that will last throughout eternity. And you realize there's another realm out there. It's not just material things that will drive you anymore. The material things of this life can't matter at all anymore because we're going to another place. We're heading for an eternal home. We have eternity to live for. And so the things of time for a Christian don't motivate us anymore. And if you find yourself as a Christian being motivated by those benchmarks and by time and by what you accomplish here, then you are missing your Christian life. You're missing what God wants for you. You can't be concerned about those things. A spiritual man knows something lies beyond. And we think about what lies beyond. And why is that? Because we're not citizens of this world any longer. We're citizens of heaven. But here's the problem with many Christians. They, they want to maintain dual citizenship. They want dual citizenship. Now, you know, in the United States of America, you can't be a citizen of America and be a citizen someplace else. Now, you say, oh, yes, you can. I mean, there's people that are born in foreign countries, and if you're born in another country, they may consider you as a citizen. Well, they might, but the United States doesn't. The United States does not have any regard for your citizenship of another country. If you are a citizen of the United States, you come under our our laws, and you have to abide by their laws. And so what happens then when a person comes into the United States and they want to be naturalized as a citizen of the United States, they explicitly tell you, you must renounce your former citizenship. You cannot be a citizen of America and someplace else. And why is that? It's because of divided loyalties. You can't be a citizen of two places. You can't give allegiance to your country when your loyalties are divided. Now, I don't want to make anybody mad right now, but, but you know, we're, we're right now in this whole debate about illegal immigration. And we're fighting over the thing of illegal immigration. And folks, this principle seems very clear to me and very simple. That if you immigrate illegally, you're breaking the laws of the country. And so why do you deserve any rights? I mean, you've already proved that you don't have any respect for the sovereignty of the people who make the laws. So why should you have rights? Now you think, well, that's a political opinion. No, it's a godly opinion. It's a godly-based opinion because we find the very same thing in the Scriptures. In the bylaws of our church, what do we say? We clearly state, you can't be a member of another church and this church at the same time. You can't do it. And why? Because of divided loyalties. And for a Christian, you can't maintain dual citizenship. You can't be a citizen of this world and also be a citizen of heaven. God's not going to permit that. Because your loyalties are divided between an earthly kingdom and a spiritual kingdom, and God will not permit it. And folks, when your mind is renewed in Christ, what you do is you judge all things in light of eternity. And you're always thinking, how will this affect my relationship with Jesus? Is this pleasing to God? Is it displeasing? What's my next move? What should I do? How would it affect my relationship with the Lord and my fellowship with God? And that's the way that we think in all that we do. And that's what happens when you're raised with Christ. And folks, that is 180 degrees turned around from verses 1 through 3. And none of it, none of it's possible without being raised together with Christ and having this new mind of fellowship with Him. But then secondly, what else else do we share in? We also share a new direction. 
Now, here is where it is so important for us to understand, again, the will of man. And I don't want to beat this issue of, of free will to death again. I mean, there's a lot that we should say, and I have more things to say as we go on throughout our study. But this whole issue is fundamental to understanding why I preach the way that I preach. And it seems like much of the difference in what I believe and what other Baptists believe are the issue of what can be accomplished in the will of man. Because I do not see the will of man as being free in the same sense that they do. Now, they have the opinion that the will of man, I mean, uh, choosing and, and the will is just a simple matter of choices. It's one or the other. You can decide to do good or you can decide to do evil. It's all a matter of choice. It's just what you decide to do. Well, when it comes to salvation, I don't think that any of us would disagree that choosing God is a good thing for us to do. And choosing against God would be a bad thing for us to do. That's a bad choice. Now, the question, though, is, is the will of man capable of making this good choice? They say it is, and I say it is not. And I can think of many scriptures that show us that it is not. In Jeremiah 13, 23, the scripture I read last week, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then may ye do good that are accustomed to do evil. Now, folks, the first part of that statement is not a rhetorical question. This is a question that you are to think about and a question you are to answer. And when you look at this, the obvious answer to the question is no. The answer is no. And so the conclusion follows, and that's pretty simple. Those of you that are accustomed to do evil, you can't turn around and start doing good. No person could ever do that. Every person is born in sin, so that person could never turn around and do something good. And Jesus explains it, but he uses a different metaphor in Matthew chapter 7. And there he says, a good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit. Neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. John the Baptist made a similar statement. He was talking to people who thought that their religion could make them... I mean, they were doing the very best that they could in their religion. They would be all right. And here's what he said in Luke 3. He said, And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. And so the point here is that when you are without Christ... And when you are dead in that condition, your natural condition, when you're in a death condition, you can't change your direction. You can't change your will. Your nature is what dictates your will, and your will has always been away from Christ. Now, what happens when you take two lines that are bent in a different direction? They will never meet. It's impossible they'll never meet. So what has to happen is your will must be changed. Your attitude must be changed. And you have to get on a parallel track with God so that your will is going in the same direction that God's will is going. Well, how is that possible? How does that take place? You can't make the change. God makes the change. Only God can bring a person to the place where he understands that his life needs to be different. There has to be a turnaround. And God must speak to us first. And that's the only way that our will will get on the same path as God's will. And you know what the Bible calls this? It's right here in Ephesians chapter 2. And what is it? It's quickening. 
And by now you should know what quickening is. It's regeneration. We have to be regenerated first. So we're brought to the place that we can repent of our sins. And we can express our faith in Christ. And then when we do, yes, it is an issue of the will now. Because it's a will that's been changed to be like Christ. And now we're going in the same direction as God's will. And so we do make a choice. Absolutely we have choices to make. And we do make choices. But we can't make that choice until God has done something with our will, until he's renewed it and brought us out of that old nature that we were in. That's the only way that we can follow the Lord. Now, folks, that seems clear to me. I'm not a genius. Well, maybe I am. I'm not a genius, but I can see that. And I don't understand why is it that people just don't believe what the Bible so clearly teaches You can never come to Christ until what? You are raised with him. And this is what Paul is telling us. Until you are raised with him. And that's when you can have fellowship with God. That's when your mind is changed. That's when your direction is changed. Only when you are raised with Christ. Now let's consider the last thought quickly. We're raised for our freedom. We're raised for our fellowship. And now thirdly, we are raised for our future. Now here's another Wonderful thought, because we have to remember that if we are together with Christ in his resurrection, then we will receive all that Christ receives. And I think Paul makes the point clear in these scriptures. Everything that we have in Christ is now a present possession. And Paul, again, made that clear to us in studying the first chapter. I mean, Paul did not want to speak to these Ephesians in such a way that they would think that what God promises is just something way out there in the future that we may or may not attain. It's way down the road somewhere. No, what he's trying to tell us is that once we receive Christ as Savior, that all the promises come true to us now. We have the promises right now. We are in present possession of them. They're just not future events. And so I believe that he's showing them that they're already partakers. And that's why a person has hope. You have hope, a sure hope, the Bible says, because you are already a partaker of these things. You've received your calling, and so you already possess those things. And here's why the Ephesian people can be so sure about it, because they have it now. And because they have it now, they know also they'll have it in the future. So being raised with Christ is not limited to present things are not limited to future things. We have them now, and we will experience them in the future. Well, there's a lot of things that we consider, could consider both negatively and positively about this as we talk about the future. I'm already out of time, so I'm going to have to hurry. Let's just list some things quickly. And first, let's talk about this whole thing negatively. And I want to talk about what we have lost for the future. What is it that we've lost? Here's what we've lost. Number one, we've lost our earthly citizenship. We've already talked about it. We've lost our earthly citizenship. We're no longer citizens of this world. Now, before, we're citizens of the world, and we walk according to this world. That's what Paul says in verse 2. We walked according to the course of this world. But he wrote verse 4, and we came to verse 4, and it says, but God. And so now that changes it all. We're raised with Christ, and we no longer walk according to the course of this world. Now, we have a new citizenship. The old citizenship is gone. And so we've lost that old citizenship. What else did we lose? Number two, we lost our bondage to Satan. That's also in verse number two. Now we talked uh, 
uh, or we walk rather according to the prince and power of the air, Paul says. And that's the God of this world. That's Satan. Paul describes him as being the God of this world. And he also wrote in the book of Romans these words, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin. In other words, no longer, but you were the servants of sin. So our present and our future is that we are no longer in bondage to Satan. Now, before we couldn't escape it, but now we've been raised with Christ, and now our future is that we can never come under the dominion of Satan again. Now, folks, one of the most diabolical doctrines that has ever been taught and one of the worst lies of Satan is that a person could lose his salvation. It can't be done because our future is to be raised with Christ. Our future is to be with Him. And losing our salvation and being under the dominion of Satan again can never be a part of our future. What else do we lose? Number three, our enmity against God. We've lost enmity with God. Now verse three says, we were by nature the children of wrath. And we've lost that. Our hatred for God is gone and God's wrath towards us is gone. Now, we know that judgment is coming. The Bible says that everybody's going to stand in judgment. But for a person who is a believer in Jesus Christ, we will never stand in a condemnation or in a judgment to condemnation. That's past for us. We've been judged to everlasting life. And so we're not enemies of God anymore. There's no reason for God to judge us that way. We've been judged to life everlasting. Now, let's finish this up by looking at the positive side. What's the positive future? Well, here's number one. What we are, I should say what we have gained for our future. Let's think about that. And number one is our heavenly citizenship. So we've gained our heavenly citizenship. We've given up the earthly. We've gained the heavenly. Now, that's a present possession. Heavenly citizenship is a present possession. But, of course, we're living in this life, and so we haven't yet realized that. But there's coming a time when we re- will, will realize that. And that's when our faith ends in sight. Now, folks, faith is a great thing. Faith is a wonderful thing. Praise God that he gives us faith. But God does not intend for us to eternally live by faith. And why is that? Because he wants our faith to end in sight. He wants our faith to be realized. I had this conversation with someone the other day. Which is greater, faith or love? Well, at least in one sense, in a temporal sense, in this way, faith actually trumps love in one way, and that's because you can't have true love without true faith. That's impossible. So love, in that sense, is dependent upon faith. But one of these days, faith will be gone, and so what will be left? Love. Love is the only thing that endures for eternity. And when we get to heaven, we won't need faith anymore, but we sure will need love We still need love, and God will love us throughout eternity. And so God's going to bring us the realization of this heavenly citizenship, and our faith will end in substance in that heavenly kingdom. Number two, what do we gain? We gain our completeness in Christ. And when I speak about completeness, I'm talking about full redemption. And here's something else that we've extensively discussed in that first chapter. We talked about redemption, and we talked about the earnest of the Holy Spirit, And the Bible teaches us that we are going to be redeemed in body and spirit. Now, we're already redeemed in the spirit right now, but the body is yet to be redeemed. We're still working on that piece. And the Holy Spirit living inside of us is the earnest, or as the Bible, as we could describe it as being the guarantee, the guarantee that the body will be redeemed. 
That's why we have the Holy Spirit. And so our future is that there will be a reunification of body and spirit. And then number three, we gain our final reward. Verse number seven of our text says that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Now in the beginning of the message, I said we fail to realize the depths of our depravity. And at the same time, we too often fail to realize where we will reach, the heights that we'll reach in our redemption in Christ. And so in Christ's resurrection, the Bible says we've been made to sit together in the heavenlies. And that's where God is. It's to be able to behold the majesty and the glory of God. In this body, we'll never be able to see God's glory, not in the natural body. You remember when Moses met with God on Mount Sinai? Moses was not allowed to see the glory of God. The Bible says he saw the back parts of God. When Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John did not get to see the full glory of Jesus. They only got a glimpse of this. And so here's what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. Don't you love that song that comes from this verse? Face to face. Face to face with Christ my Savior. Folks, I'm interested in rewards. I'd like to have some rewards. But the greatest reward of all, the thing that I'm most interested in, is to see Jesus face to face. Now this is what Paul is telling us. Do you see what our resurrection in Christ means? This is not just an abstract thought. You have it now. You have it as a present possession. And Paul wants you to know that. And, and it's blessings beyond measure. And it makes you wonder, why doesn't anyone, or why doesn't everyone, I should say, receive Christ as their Savior? Why not? But God, but God, but God, he writes, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. And that's the change from verses 1 through 3. Verses 4 through 7 make all the difference in the world. We are raised for our freedom, raised for our fellowship, and raised for our future. And thank God for the Lord Jesus Christ that we're raised together with him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for great thoughts that we have from the book of Ephesians and how our hearts are almost made to melt at such profound words. And Lord, to realize where we came from, but now where we're going. Lord, I ask you to speak to our hearts tonight and help us to remember this message and not only just to think about the depths of our depravity, but see where we've been taken to because of our faith in Christ and because you spoke to us first. Thank you, Lord, for these words. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's please stand as we sing.